Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March the 29th, 2021, and this is episode 2845 of the Survival Podcast. It's a listener roundtable uh, combination. A few of these topics are just ones I've picked up. Most of them are from questions and emails from the audience, some going back a few weeks. Of course, I had a week off. You might hear that my voice is a little bit strained. I'm going to abbreviate my responses a little bit, a little less detail than normal. Try to keep this show in at under an hour in total. Uh, I apologize for maybe phoning it in a little bit on my first day back, but it is a grueling week, uh, workshop weeks. I said to my wife yesterday, and I don't think it was an exaggeration, I said, uh, you know, everybody left either last night or yesterday afternoon late or this morning, depending on how they stayed and how they handled the last night of the workshop. And I bet they were tired. I bet they were really tired because we worked hard. And it's three nights that, you know, a lot of people are up late and a few more adult beverages than you normally would have and uh, a lot of physical labor in this one. But I said that I bet you that we, meaning myself, her, uh, and the, the two big helpers that I had in this, or three big helpers that I had in this, Nicole Sauce, uh, J.R. Haley, and Nick Ferguson, I bet we were as tired as they were when they left the day they got here. Because our, our whole thing started on Saturday. So we went Saturday through Sunday um, 100%. And I even had some, some cleanup and some things I had to do yesterday. So I'm a little worn out, but I think I'm going to give you guys a good show today. Here's what we're talking about. Leading off with a couple crypto questions. Man, I think maybe I need to do another crypto episode. Um, I called a lot of crypto questions because I didn't want this to be one. I wanted variety and a feedback show. So I've got one investing in crypto with ETFs inside retirement accounts. Um, this is from a Canadian listener where they already have ETFs where they can invest directly. There's some in the U.S. to give you some exposure, but it's not a direct correlation. Um, and I'm going to call this the good and the bad. And by the way, there is no ugly. There's no ugly to this at all. Crypto for kids with parents who have no interest in crypto, like, say, nieces and nephews. How do you handle that? Pretty simple, actually. Of kids and snakes. See, we've got to have some variety. I have a question on a guy with a daughter who, who thinks that snakes are amazing. Makes me think of myself as a kid. She wants to keep snakes. She wants to learn how to handle snakes. He wants to know how to handle that. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Uh, how about transitioning seeds that were started into hydroponic systems, a soil planted systems? I had some questions about that at this workshop, and uh, you know I can't answer them all at the workshop, man. So I thought maybe I'd throw that on today's show. And I've heard this from a lot of people by email and, and other ways as well. What if you're a beekeeper? This was one I just got, and this is an interesting one to think about. What if you're a beekeeper and you love honey and you've transitioned to keto? Now what? It's pure sugar, and it is. Um, tell, tell you how you don't have to give up honey forever, but probably eating it every day is gone for good if you're going to stay keto. It's one or the other. You can't have both. Um, you know, I did a show recently on climate change, real climate change, and I talked about topsoil loss and what it leads to. And a listener sent me something that I knew, but the way he put it together was so perfect. And it wasn't long. It was specific and to the point. We're going to talk about how Ethiopia created massive deserts and famine doing exactly what the U.S. is doing right now. Exactly. And I'll tell you why. We've actually been doing it longer than they did to get where they ended up. 
And I'll tell you why that is and why that doesn't mean we can keep doing it forever. And I've had, like, in the last three weeks, including the week I was gone, a dozen questions on buying a house. And it's all kind of the same. When? And then some of them come with a lot of details. I work here. I make this much money. Blah, blah, blah. This is where I can live now. Yeah, and on and on and on and on. Um, but it doesn't matter. Because I can't answer it for anybody. All I can do is tell you how to think about it. And we will hit that one again as we wrap up today. Before we do that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Western Botanicals. Uh, Western Botanicals is my go-to source for herbs. If it's not in my backyard and I want it, I know they have it. If I want to make some kind of herbs and I don't have a material I need, let's say if I wanted to do some sort of a, a deep heat ointment that I wanted that, that heat and cooling effect with, I can get menthol crystals would be one example from Western Botanicals. So whether it's a full-fledged formula, it's a whole raw herb, uh, or it is some sort of adjunct, again, menthol, crystals, beeswax, etc. If it is herbal or related to them and legal in the U.S., you will find it at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. Guys, I'll tell you, there is there's something about the group of people that run that that I absolutely, I mean just absolutely love. They are some of the best people that I've ever worked with, ever. I've been supporting what they do since 2009, just a year into doing this. I'm still supporting them now. What they're doing is moving people to New Hampshire to drag that state, kicking and screaming against its will toward freedom and liberty, and they've done a great job over the last decade. To learn more about it, you can go to fsp.org. If you really want to learn more, meet some people, and have a good vacation at the same time, I mean, just take a vacation but have some cool people to help you out, with your vacation and also kind of tell you about what's going on, check out fsp.org. Say it again so I get it right. fsp.org forward slash visit NH. With that, let's go ahead and dig into today's episode and start out with a quote of the day. Uh, Albert Einstein has been often misattributed to quotes. Best I can tell, this is not a misattribution. This was actually said by Einstein, and I'm sure if it wasn't, I'm sure he said things like it all the time. Anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. This fits really well with the uh, the first edition of Miyagi Mornings I did this morning, coming back to that as well, where I talked about optimism. Optimism is one of the most important things a person can have. What I said on Miyagi Mornings today is optimists look to the future. That's where we're always building stuff. That's where we're always doing things for tomorrow rather than just for today. That's why we don't compromise so much. But if you're going to do that, you're going to mess stuff up. You know, I think really, like, there are things that you want to be really careful with because, like, something bad can happen. Somebody can get hurt. It can cost a lot of money. And those things we need to be careful with. But it amazes me how, how willing people are to do nothing because they're not sure about a thing. When if they do the thing, the worst thing that will happen is they'll be out 20 bucks, Or they'll have to fix it. Or whatever. Anything worth doing has the potential to have an error within it. And so what this also makes me think of is I had a student this weekend who said when we were going over my aquaponics system, one of my aquaponics systems, do you have a parts list for this? I'm like, no. No, because it would be useless. It would be absolutely useless. So instead I explained the system. Let's start with the container. Uh, let's start with the, the sump, the, the container for the water how many gallons we have. Then we got to figure out if we're going to do an ebb and flow system, uh, a, a rafting system, a wicking bed that's a flow-through wicking bed, or a wicking bed that's static with a flow valve. Like, how are we going to actually assemble 
the things. What, what do we want in that system? And then we're going to work through starting from, okay, now I know I need a pump. And I need a pump that's X in size because there's so many gallons and so many delivery points. So now I know what that is. Now I need some way to get the pump from the pump to PVC pipe. I need to know what size pipe I'm going to use. And then I kind of need to work as I go and say, okay, this pipe's going to run here. It's going to go to a split here. I'm going to need a valve here. And you're going to have to, and you're going to need a bulkhead and et cetera. And you got to figure it out. And inevitably, when you put something like that together the first time, there's a leak. Something didn't work. Um, you thought this was going to be enough. I mean, I've had systems where I put a ebb and flow bed, turned it on, and it got so heavy it broke a support. And I had to, like, real quick shut the water off and drain it. Like, stuff goes wrong. So no one can give you everything that you need to know before you do it to build something. Because even if you have kind of a roll-it-out-out-of-the-box pre-made system, well, number one, you're going to pay too much for it for standing aquaponics. But the environment you're going to put it in, unless you're sitting on a perfectly level concrete block that was designed large enough for that pre-made system to go to, you're going to have to fiddle with things and figure them out. And that is so much the way that life is. Anyone who's never made a mistake has never tried anything new, which means there is no one who's never made a mistake, and everybody's tried something new. So the way to look at this, then, since you know that's the case, is why did you stop? Why did you stop? I guarantee any of these people that are stuck and they just don't act, they don't take risks, they weren't always that way. Something happens to us. We become older, we become more cautious, and some of that's good. But we shouldn't lose that youthful spirit. And I'll tell you what really happens. We go to the school system. We get indoctrinated. We get controlled. We learn to be compliant, and we learn that we must be judged by somebody else to know if our results matter. It's not how the real world works. Your results in of themselves are the feedback to, so that you know what you did right, what you did wrong, and what to do next. All right, with that, let's start off with a question. I thought this was an interesting one. It is a cryptocurrency question. And since there were so many, I stacked two of them because one's a real simple one right in the front so we can get through that and go to other subjects. So there's a lot of specific information here that's irrelevant to my answer other than obviously don't spend money on crypto. You, you, you can't afford to lose. But that's true of any investment. So as, as soon as we are into the world of cryptocurrency or the world of investing, the same advice would apply. So this listener's in Canada. He's got ten to $20,000 to invest in cryptocurrency. It sounds like it's already in an IRA or something similar, whatever the hell they call them. The savings vehicle is called a TSFA, tax-free savings account. So it's basically our Roth IRA um, in Canada. And Canada has had several ETFs in the past few weeks approved by their version of the SEC, uh, specifically for Bitcoin and Ethereum. And he wants to know if I would and how I would invest in that within a retirement account. And so I've talked a lot about this, and I feel if you're, we're not talking a few hundred or even a few thousand dollars, when you have cryptocurrencies at an all-time high, kind of watching the market, waiting for some dips, and buying in pieces, parts over time is probably better than just throwing all the money in at once. Now, if we get a temporary big dip... And you want to take that shot, I wouldn't fault you for it. But remember, big dips often come followed by more big dips. And we don't really know exactly where the bottom of the next real correction will be. It could be way down at 20000 It could never see south of 45000 ever again. 
It may never see south of much under 50. We don't know. None of those are projections. Those are admissions that I don't know. So I'm going to stick to the core and the crux of the question here. If you have the option, does it make sense to use cryptocurrency inside an, an IRA or a similar type of tax-deferred or tax-free account? Roth always being the way I recommend people in the U.S. to go. The answer is absolutely yes. There is no ugly. There is a little bit of bad, but it's off-weighed by the good by a huge long shot. Starting off with the good, I believe that Bitcoin, just Bitcoin right now, is one of the best long-term investments a person can make right now. I'm all for the dollar-cost averaging component to it, but the reality is if you just threw the money in it and you don't need to look at it for 10 years or more, I think that you are going to be fine. There may be some point that you want to take profits, uh, etc. But this is why this whole idea that Bitcoin's going to go away, cryptocurrency going to go away, is stupid. It's stupid. No. I mean, you have Canada, first world nation, approving ETFs for Bitcoin and Ethereum. What this means is there's going to be private retirement uh, funds that are like pensions for workers, etc. It, it may not be tomorrow morning, but we're going to have public sectors with pension funds, with at least some portion of their pension invested in this. This is something that I said would happen uh, weeks ago. I started talking about how this was going to happen, and I said that's great. So even beyond the question, this is good news for cryptocurrency. There's a lot of people that don't want to see crypto co-opted. I don't either in some ways, but the other side of it is this is what takes something like Bitcoin from a trillion-dollar asset to a $10 trillion asset. And beyond. And it also is what makes it at some point where governments can't mess with it. Now, I don't mean can't mess with it, just can't do things and put regulations around it and try to get greater compliance with taxation, uh, greater uh, KYC requirements and stuff like that. That's not what I mean. I mean, as far as trying, like, we're going to ban it. We're going to ban it. Okay, when you have your teachers' unions pension fund in Bitcoin, you can't ban it without committing political suicide. So you understand what I'm saying there. So I think this is good for crypto as a whole. And I've always said your first ones would be Bitcoin and Ethereum. On the Ethereum side, again, I'm back to, I think Ethereum has a big problem right now. Uh, but if they can pull off Ether 2.0 over the next two years and go to a true proof-of-stake model, I think it's a $10,000 asset. I don't know what that means the market cap is. I haven't made that connection this morning. I'm tired. I'm not thinking as well as usual. But I, I think it's a, it's, it's a $10,000 asset. So I'm fine with both of those. The good is, if it's a tax-free, our equivalent of a Roth, not tax-deferred, that's beautiful. Because I think they're assets that the profit on them will be astronomical. And if you're going to have something with an astronomical profit, then you want it <laughs> to be tax-free profit. And it's the only way I know to do it. And I think as more and more this happens, as that IRA, 401k, etc., retirement money has an opportunity to flow into crypto assets, it's going to drive the price of the roof. I've been saying that for five years now, that sooner or later this is going to happen, and when it does, all bets are off to the top for specifically Bitcoin. I'll put it a different way for you. If we took every millionaire in North America, not the world, just North America, every millionaire in North America and took the available supply, the estimated available supply of Bitcoin, means it's been mined and it's not been held for more than five years without moving from an address. Remember, we can see that on the blockchain. 
If we took that amount of Bitcoin and every millionaire in North America and they all wanted some Bitcoin, there's enough for all of them to have about 0.33 or 0.35 Bitcoins. I don't remember the math now exactly. But basically a third. Just all the millionaires of, of stuff that we think is available. Because just because it hasn't moved in five years doesn't mean somebody's going to sell it. Tesla's not selling their Bitcoin tomorrow. They bought a billion and a half dollars worth of it when it was worth a hell of a lot less than it is now. So you see how there's just this, again, we're back to this limited supply thing. So overall, that's good. And I love the idea of not paying tax on it ever. And, of course, that's public crypto. So that's the bad. The bad is now it's in a custodial account. Okay, because now we're invested in not Bitcoin, but ETF BTC, right? Some, you know, whatever the hell they call it, BTC ETF, right? whatever they call it. So now we're in a position where we're not holding crypto. You understand that? We're not holding a crypto. We're purely investing in crypto. We don't have any crypto. Basically, you're bought, it's like holding crypto on an on a even more highly regulated version of Coinbase. Okay. Fine. I'm only this is this is exactly how I say if you want to buy silver or gold inside a retirement account to do it, right? Buy a silver ETF, buy a gold ETF. Don't buy silver, don't do physical metal IRAs. This is stupid. Because the physical metal you can hold. So we're we're bifurcating and separating the two worlds. So this is a long-term strategy or short-term trade in a tax-free environment. All good. Bad, of course, being now it's public. So what? Bitcoin's a public currency. I don't. That doesn't mean you can't unanimously, anonymously. I'm sorry, use it. But overall, it's public. It's on a public blockchain. Once an address is associated with you, then any activity with that address is associated with you, and we can take and track any individual piece of Bitcoin and track it all the way back to its genesis. Doesn't mean we know who's associated with the numbers, but we can do that. So it's not like it's R. It's not like it's Pirate Chain or Monero, right, that we're putting into an IRA and, and publicly declaring that which was before anonymous. It already has, you know, you might as well assume that they probably do know that you own that Bitcoin, even though they probably don't. You should probably assume that they do because it keeps you from getting yourself into trouble, right? So, it, yeah, you know, it's not terrible. There's no ugly here. There's no ugly. There's none. There, there's no place where you're like, man, this is a really terrible thing. Because all it does is put us into a position where we're going to make Bitcoin and Ethereum and any other currencies they allow to do this so mainstream and so integrated into the lives of average people, you can't take it away. L let's look at it this way. You, what, 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 what do you think would happen? If the United States government came out and said that General Electric is illegal, General Electric is illegal, it has to be shut down immediately. Not fined, it's illegal. Now, I know you're thinking, well, that can't happen. It probably could if they did something bad enough and actually got in trouble for it. Of course, they buy off the, 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 the clowns. But the reason you really can't do that is it's, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't even know what the market cap on GE is. GE is, I, I think GE's market cap exceeds the cryptocurrency, entire crypto market cap, right? But it's in pension funds and retirement accounts, little old ladies holding mutual funds with General Electric in it. You, you, you just can't do this. It's too integrated, and there's too much money 
involved. It's it's like committing suicide to fight cancer, right? You, you, you can't touch it. You can't, you know, you can regulate it. You can make it harder for certain people to own GE stock if you want to. If it has some sort of tax, uh, some sort of enhanced tax status or something like that, you could remove that. But you, you, you can't just take it away. So I think overall this is a really, really good thing for crypto. And I think it's coming to the U.S. soon. And I, I said this a few uh, weeks ago on, on social media. This is the other thing that's going to come. If we don't get, and I mean within the next six months, a real Bitcoin ETF in the United States approved by our SEC, if we don't get that, we are going to get a mutual fund or 3,000 of them that are giving you exposure to Bitcoin by only holding companies that meet some other standard, i.e. growth in income, small cap, mid cap, large cap, etc., that also hold X percentage or some certain amount of cryptocurrency or Bitcoin or Bitcoin Ethereum or some combination thereof on their balance sheet. So in other words, if I was putting together an ETF today trying to do this, I'd have a hard time. But more and more institutional companies are investing in Bitcoin, Ethereum, etc., right? So if you're a public company, within the boundaries of like the next quarterly report, right, that has to be reported. You can't do this and not tell people you're doing it. If you're a private company, sure, right? But if you're, if you're Tesla, if you're General Electric, if you're Ford Motor Company, right, if you're Daimler Chrysler, you know, if you're ExxonMobil, If you're any of these companies and you say, I'm going to take some of my capital reserves, I'm going to put it in Bitcoin, like, like Elon Musk did. You have to disclose, like you literally, like, like there's not a lot of things that will put people in those entities at the top levels into federal prison. There's not. They can get away with so much shit that if you are, because they have so much money, so much influence, so much power, so much connection, so many things keep them out of prison for things that you would go to prison for. But that ain't one of them specifically and intentionally hiding the allocation of the assets of shareholders in this country will put you in club fed. So they must disclose. So the existing fund managers, the existing investment companies, right? They already have the ability to invest in any of these companies. All they're doing is adding a selection criteria. So that's why I think it's going to happen because it's already the back door is now open, and all you're waiting for is enough companies to do it. And if they don't do this, as soon as there's maybe two dozen companies that you can put in a mutual fund, somebody you know American Express or uh, uh, somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to do it. Somebody's going to say, "Here's our mutual fund of corporations that hold cryptocurrency." And there's going to be no way to there's no way to regulate that out of the picture, right? The companies are already public companies; they already comply with all of the. So this is this is really interesting, and I, I'll put it this way: the, the short answer. When this happens, I will be calling up my investment, uh, the person who handles my investments, and saying I want a specific portion of my assets held specifically inside my uh, my Roth IRA uh, in cryptocurrency or other ways that we're attached to crypto assets. Uh, next one, and this will be a short one on cryptocurrency, and um, because we, I don't want to make the whole show crypto. Uh, but this is from James. James says, Hi, Jack. I am considering gifting 
uh, crypto to my grandchildren instead of giving them money. I'm thinking about having my grandkids Bitcoin for their birthdays. The only drawback is neither of their parents have anything to do with crypto. If I give them some Bitcoin anyway, should I set up a wallet and transfer crypto into it, then give them the keys? Should I keep a copy of the private keys as backup for them? James, long-time listener, thanks for everything you do. James, I'm thinking that you need to somehow make them aware that they have cryptocurrency from Grandpa and let them learn about it and what it is. But if it's going to be anything significant, it probably is, or you wouldn't ask. If it was going to be a couple dollars, you'd just do it. But I'm suggesting that however you hold it, you do it. Their parents are likely to not maybe be resistant, but not really care enough. And there isn't a person out there who hasn't probably misplaced some piece of key information for some crypto somewhere. You know, or, you know, made a mistake. The other thing is, There's a certain segment of society that when they look at like a public and private key or a passphrase, they know what it is. So what I would do is I would set up some wallets, you know, and maybe you go, depending on how much, maybe you go hardware wallets with this. And I would deposit Bitcoin into them at every instance that you decide to give it to them, birthdays, Christmas, however you plan on doing this. And that's set aside for them. And... I would make them aware of it. And kids like to get stuff. So I don't know if you give them like, you know, like the, 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 the physical Bitcoins that are not really worth any money. There's ones that have the, like basically they come with a key or a QR code in them that gives you access to funds. I wouldn't do that with kids. Now, again, how old are, and I wouldn't do it with even older kids that are responsible enough to not lose their keys because it doesn't take much to figure out how to spend it. So this is kind of like money that you're giving a kid that's like, This is for life establishment. This is money you probably want these kids to have when they're like, you know, maybe not 20, maybe not 18 or 20, maybe 25, you know, or a little bit older if it's a significant amount of money. Because kids do stupid shit with money. Being grown-ass men do, but young people really do stupid shit with money. This might be money that if one of them really is switched on and they have an opportunity to start a business or something they want to invest in, you might be okay with some of it going there. But I really think with the future of crypto being what it is... Like, this is this is done. I wish my grandfather would have had this opportunity and took it for me because I'd be retired on Jackistan by now, right? Um, I, I think that the long term is what you're looking at. So the key is all of us can die. And having some way bulletproof, redundant record, this is how this is accessed. And as long as that's done, I would maintain control over this. I would maintain control over this. It might be good. I'll tell you what you can do for them. If they're old enough that they have a phone or a tablet or a computer or anything that can install apps, you can get an app. It's one I use for tracking my various portfolios. It's called CoinStat, C-O-I-N-S-T-A-T-S. You could install that on their device for them. It has no actual connection to their cryptocurrency. This is actually a really great idea. I'm glad you asked. I just had the idea as I'm trying to walk through how to do it. So you install CoinStats on their device, and you'd make a deposit into an address. They don't need to know the address. They don't need to be able to access it. It's like it's like when, you're, when your grandma, when I was a kid, your grandma gave you bonds, and they got locked in a box. But you knew grandma gave me a $100 bond. I saw it. It was put in a box. It's for me in the future, a U.S. savings bond. My grandma used to do that for me. 
Um, boy, I wish those were crypto bonds. That would have been awesome. So you put coin stats on their phone or their tablet or whatever, and you say your grandpa put in, I don't know, maybe you're really generous, point one Bitcoin. That's a lot of money. Um, and then they can see how much money they have. And any time you add to the deposit or add an asset, let's say you decide to do some Ethereum or something, you help them or teach them how to add it and change the number. And then they can sit there and they can, whenever they want to, they can look and see how much their investment's worth. It also keeps you accountable. You don't have to go to Vegas with their crypto money someday, right? You know, because you've now it's really pledged to them. I like that idea. That's how I would do it. Let's take another one. Just again, be damn sure that if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, somebody somewhere knows how to get the data on how to get the crypto. And of course, that's, you, you need to have that for your crypto too, right? So, like, if you kick off your wife or whoever gets it. This one's from Will. Will says, um, Hey, Jack, I'd like to talk snakes. If I make arrangements for my daughter to handle snakes, what are specific things I need to educate myself on to foster productive life experience? I've got a 10-year-old who's completely convinced she wants to raise snakes. Uh, my little bundle of joy has been hounding her mother and I for over a year or two. She's proven and even impresses both her ability and responsibility to care for and maintain every animal on her homestead, chicken, ducks, cats, dogs, pigs, even cattle that I maintain on these lands. At eight years old, she has learned to give antibiotic shots to dogs and cats. She's also always excited to help dispatch livestock for slaughter. In other words, I'm completely comfortable and impressed with her maturity and respect for animals for all purposes. She has a passion for snakes. She's done her part showing her commitment, but other than relocating non-venomous snakes, and yes, I kill venomous snakes, I don't have a clue how to keep one. Long-time listener, I know you're an enthusiast, if not an expert. I'd love to hear from your feedback. Give a reason to, and maybe give a reason to talk about an interest of your own. Thanks, always will. Thank you for letting me talk about kids and snakes and kids with snakes. Because that's, if I were to go back heavily into snakes again, I would dedicate, I would do what Michael Jordan did with bees and honey. Yeah, I have snakes and reptiles, but it's all for kids. Because, I don't know, there's just something magical about opening the mind of a child so that they learn, uh, They learn not to be afraid of things that they have been taught to be afraid of. Because we are actually are taught to be afraid of snakes. There's no logical reason to be afraid of a snake, especially if we know it's not venomous. So let's talk about straight up. You, you said handle, but we're all. It seems like we're more talking about possession, ownership, and care. So with handling, you can probably go to the pet store of your choice that sells non-venomous snakes. Say we're thinking about getting a snake as a first step because that way they're not trying like they they know you're not buying today and 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 daughter needs to know we're not buying today. Dad's just kind of encouraging you here. I'm still learning some things. I'm still figuring some things out. And so if this turns into an argument, can we get it today? Crying, holding your breath of anything like that, there will be no snake ever, right? And so we're just going to go look at some snakes and hold some snakes. Hopefully they'll let us do that. Most places will. They'll let you handle the snakes. If you ever get the opportunity to go to a reptile show, uh, we have a huge one that comes to Dallas, Fort Worth. Usually it's in Arlington every year. Awesome thing. And generally you have to you know, use sanitizer on your hands because you can spread diseases from one animal to the other. That's why they do that. Um, but you can handle most of the things there. As far as caring for snakes, it is easier to care for a snake than a hamster. There's certain things they need, but once set up, It's easier to care for a snake for a than for a snake than for a hamster. A snake needs access to water at all times, and to be fed about once every week to three weeks, depending on what you have and what your feeding schedule is and what you're feeding them. And it needs to have its poop cleaned out of its tank, and eventually it needs the substrate, whatever you're using, replaced. 
It needs to be warm when it wants to be warm and able to cool off when it needs to cool off. It needs to be in a, a very escape-proof uh, cage system because they are escape artists. All of them are. Some better than others. Like Sinaloan milk snakes might be the ultimate Harry Houdini of snakes. Like that would be the ultimate getaway snake. But you know, even corn snakes, king snakes, etc. tend to be able to get away. So I think you can learn everything. Because I'm not going to give like how to keep a snake 101 on the show today. Just know you need a, a container big enough for the animal. Um, you can start out smaller than you're going to need, and as it grows, increase. But it's usually better to go straight up to a larger vivarian. This is one thing you may find a conflict with my advice on online. They'll say a snake, if you put him in a really big cage, and he's a little snake, it's not good. Wait till he's bigger, because, yeah, because the earth works that way. If you give them places to hide, and you need to do that, then they have all the feeling of containment that's necessary. They're not going to feel overwhelmed because, you know, you have a, I'm looking at a 55-gallon fish tank right now. You put a baby corn snake in there. That's way more room than it needs. But it's not going to feel like, oh, my God, it's too big of a space. It's going to spend a lot of time crawling around trying to find a way out. So I think you can find all the information you need. I will tell you that if I were getting a snake for a child, especially this age, I would not do it unless I were willing to be involved at least some. I would probably go to the epitome of the starter snake, and that is going to be a corn snake. They come in all kinds of colors and shapes and sizes, and I would get something cool. I would spend a little bit more money, you know, to get a lavender or uh, like an, a really cool Okatee pattern, one of the really dark borders, or I'm, you know, I don't even know what's available in the world of corn snakes now, right? But I would look for a snake that sells a little bit at a premium. Because that way, if you ever want to get rid of it, there's probably somebody who will take it. Or I would go with a very natural form animal. So if, even though you're not supposed to, a corn snake, if it's native to where you live, could just you know get away. I'll leave it at that and let you figure it out from there. The other option is to keep a wild animal. So a, if you find a non-venomous snake, setting up a vivarian and keeping it. There's almost... No snakes in North America that are non-venomous that are difficult to keep. Other than like the little tiny earth snakes, brown snakes, ringneck snakes, those things, you don't see much of them, so they're not as engaging, and they have kind of some specialized requirements. Or water snakes. Water snakes, water snakes number one, they bite like crazy. Even though it's harmless, they bite like crazy. No one likes that. When they get upset and they musk, they to high heaven and they need water and water will be the thing you have to do the most maintenance with with changing because when the snake craps in water and they like to it stinks well if the snake spends all its time in the water or most of its time in the water it just craps most of its crap in the water so I wouldn't recommend a water snake garter snakes ribbon snakes they're kind of like halfway between terrestrial and water snakes fine for first uh, keeping pets Smooth and rough green snakes often are found throughout a lot of the United States in the wild. Those things, they don't, I've never, I'm not going to say they don't bite. Anything with a mouth could bite, in theory. I've never seen one bite. Caught out of the wild, grab, never seen one bite. Ribbon snakes and garter snakes, caught out of the wild, they'll bite. Uh, your rat, various rat snakes, corn snakes are a type of rat snake. Bull snakes, uh, king snakes, all that, fine. And if you want to take that out of the wild, and if you feel better about the fact that someday it might get away and giant, Dr. Evil air quotes, then maybe that's the way to go. 
the easy button is a captive bred, purchased animal that's already started on feeding. Because when you bring a wild one in, it may or may not feed for you. It also may or may not tame down. And with an eight-year-old, I want to encourage this. So I'm going to go with captive bred, already feeding, kind of a little bit elevated in pattern so I can sell it or at least give it away. Because if you have like a common king, a common corn, and you want to give it away, you might have a hard time finding it. However, you might also check Craigslist or any other form of classified ads if you want to do this. And maybe even put out some feelers on like a next door. Because you might find somebody that has, you know, a corn snake or something like that, has everything for it, and is just bored with it. That'll give you everything or do it really stupid cheap. But definitely encourage it. Don't be afraid. Don't make her afraid of something she's not afraid of. It is important to learn. With non-venomous snakes, what's important to do is learn how to handle them so you don't harm them or upset them and learn what to do if they bite you. Do you know what you do if they bite you? Absolutely nothing. That's what you do. You do absolutely nothing, and they'll stop. They're not going to eat you. They're not going to poison you. They're not going to chew your finger off, right? And, and you need to learn proper feeding. So when we're feeding a snake, it's the one time we're most likely to get bitten during feeding or right after feeding when the whole place smells like mouse or rat or other snake or whatever it is that 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 animal consumes because and when they're almost ready to shed they usually you just shouldn't even feed them but if they have opaque eyes and if they are hungry so they're going to eat even though they they tend not to when they're getting close to shed now they can't see well all they can do is smell so the other thing we want to do if we touch any sort of of small mammal or anything that might smell like a thing a snake eats we wash our hands before we touch our snake And we also, when we're moving around in the aquarium, vivarian, whatever you're keeping this animal in, we're going to make sure that if it's like in a hide, like some sort of a cave or something like that, we don't move our hands right outside the hole. Because that's movement, and that's from an ambush position, and that's more likely to trigger an instinctive feeding bite. But if we get bit, it's hard to do. Don't even pull back. Do nothing. The snakes we're talking about here, corn snakes, bull snakes, etc., it doesn't hurt if you don't do anything. You'll bleed a little bit, but it doesn't hurt at all. I mean, at all. Their teeth are so fine and so sharp. When they bite, when they realize this is a bad idea, they let go. And then you bleed a little bit, but it doesn't hurt. Their teeth are curved. If you pull away, you know, grab your, grab your one hand with the other and claw into it a little bit with your fingers turned back and pull against it. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Now imagine your fingers are tiny, tiny, very, very sharp teeth. So if we can get past that, and most of these snakes are not likely to bite. I'm telling you this because it does happen, and that's something the girl needs to understand. You can get bit. You know what else you can get bit by? A hamster, a gerbil, a guinea pig, and much more painful bites, by the way, even if you do pull back. Now, my final piece of advice here. Stay away, 100% away with first animals like this from freaking big snakes. No boys. That's that's your boas, your pythons. No, no. One exception. Ball python would be okay. There'd be another great starter snake. Um, you want to make sure that animal feeds up to the point that I would even say, really, that animal's feeding on on frozen, pre-killed mice. Feed it one. Let me see it. Well, we don't have any defrosted, or it ate yesterday. 
I will come back on Tuesday. Have one ready. to. I want to see that animal eat. Uh, they can be problematic. A lot of them that are claimed in the pet trade to be uh, captive red or actually wild caught. I've, I've known people that have ended up with some of them. The only thing they'll eat is a gerbil, much more expensive. And I do recommend animals that are started on frozen thawed because that is so much easier and so much cheaper. You can buy them online. They ship them to your house. You throw them in the freezer like anything else. You, know, you can buy your first few at the pet store or whatever. You decide you're going to keep doing it. Go ahead. As for breeding and husbandry that's beyond keeping a single animal, you shouldn't worry about it for two years. My deal with this kiddo would be we're going to take you out. You're going to learn everything you need to be able to handle and set up properly, heat lamps, etc., and you're going to prove yourself. And when you're 10, we'll talk about maybe a pair in an incubator, and we're going to see if that's a thing to do. Because you know what happens to 8-year-olds between 8 and 10? They get bored. They decide they want to do something else. So don't discourage it, but don't overcommit. Wow, that went longer than I expected, but hopefully that will help. Um... Pasquale says, I've been watching your Crack Key seed starting videos. If you're going from your system to soil, do you still harden off first, and if so, how? There are plants that I have taken. I pull them out of a hydro seed starting system. They're well started. You know, they're a couple inches high, a few true leaves at least on them, and I take them out and stick them in the dirt, and they almost always invariably look very, very sad. They go very, very flat, and they tend to come back and grow just fine. Specifically, Fall and winter and early spring plantings with plants that are cool weather plants when the sun's not really high and not really hot. You can get away with it. And if you just, you know, if you want six, so you make ten and four of them die, you don't care because you're back to six. That tends to be what I do with those types of plants. When it comes to planting in this time of year, where even when it's still, you know, it's only getting up in the 70s, but man, throughout the day that sun's like, bah, right? It's, it's out and it's intense and that plant is now not just coping with going from a perfect timed lighting system where it will never burn into heat and wind. It's also going from uh, a hydroponic system with 100% bioavailability to soil and it has to, so it has to make that adjustment. It's probably going to prune off some roots because some of those roots are more adapted to a hydrated state, et cetera. And this is easier with a Kratky seed starting system than just a standard one because you've got an air gap. So those roots are, those roots that have been in the air gap, they're going to, they're going to adjust to soil at a much faster pace than the ones that were down in the water. Okay. So when I'm doing that, I take and I, I pot them up into You know, my, 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 my go-to here is if I go to Home Depot, Lowe's, et cetera, box stores, and I'm buying like Bonnie's plants, they come in little cups that are expensive, um, and I do, sometimes I need some, I look around. And if there's some empty ones or if like there's three in this one and three in that one, you know, and they're like 10-pack holders that hold these cups, there's three in each of the same plant because I'm not a dick and I don't want to, you know, put – you know, two different kinds of peppers together and one that says one and people don't check and then they get screwed. So if like two of them are both, let's say, Marconi peppers, then I'll take them out of one and put it in there. And if there's if there's a few around, I might stack three of them together. Nobody ever says anything at Home Depot about taking them. I think they throw them away. And then I take all the ones I'm going to buy and put them in there. When I go home and I pop those out, put them in the ground, I save the cups and I save the carriers. And what do I do with the extra carriers? And I don't have enough of the free cups that you get when you buy the plant. Take a red Solo cup, turn it upside down, drill some holes in it. If you need ten of them, stack like five together. You can do about you can do about five or six at a time with a standard drill bit length. Drill holes in the bottom. They fit in there like they were made to go in those those holders. 
And so that's what I use, good potting soil. I, I, I bury them in the potting soil. I sprinkle a little doctor earth around the, the top. I water them in. I keep them in the shade. And I, I give them at least a couple of weeks to kind of adapt to that new environment. What I'm looking for is to start to notice root growth. And so a week, week and a half into it, when I know that plant's starting to look good, it's put some, it's gotten, even if it hasn't gotten sad, I want it to look bigger. I want it to grow some. When it starts growing in there, then I'm going to start increasing the amount of sunlight it gets for a couple of days like any other plant, and I'm going to plant it. That's it. That's how I do that. So hopefully that answers that question well. Uh, next one. So this one is a question about beekeepers, and it was actually for Ken Berry, and I have so many in the hopper for him. I thought I would answer this one because I know that Ken's not a beekeeper and has never been a beekeeper and doesn't play around with bees. Uh, so he may come at this strictly from 100% nutritional standpoint. I'd like to come at it accepting that some people love to run their apiaries. Some people love honey. And this is a legitimate question, but we have got to be honest about it at the same time. Uh, he says, thank you for all the information you've shared with many of us looking for alternative ways of health to break the cycle some of our family members are in. My question is regarding beekeepers and the keto diet. We have been beekeepers a number of, with a number of hives for years now. It's been a great bonding and learning experience for my family. Recently, I've been wanting to take to, to turn on the keto. However, honey issue is obviously a concern, and assuming there is no way it could work even with the smallest intake. My question is, are there any acceptable natural sugars and any more suitable for keto? I believe I know the answer. Sugars are sugar, starches are starches, but I thought it would be interesting to hear your take. And I will let Ken answer this as well. I want to be clear on that, but I wanted to, like, you're not going to hear an answer to this until, like, June when I send it to Ken. Not because he won't get it back to me because I have that many already answered. I have a huge bank of questions. So here's my deal. You cannot eat honey or any sugar in any real quantity at all and stay in ketosis. The end, infinity, done. Okay. Does it mean you can't be a person that lives a keto lifestyle and occasionally uses some honey? And it, no, it is not the case that you can have no honey and stay on keto. You will need to look up the macros, and so it might be a very small amount of honey, but you certainly could have some honey, especially if you're not using other sources of carbs that day, and stay in ketosis. You could also have honey that's a little bit higher than what you're supposed to do. It will push you out of ketosis, and so what? Now, as always, if you are obese, if you have other health conditions, if you have not yet gotten your shit together, you're in the state, you're in that kind of like, I need to lose weight, I need to correct these problems, situation, etc., then you need to abstain, you need to be using an app, you need to 100% track everything that you do, and things like honey or other sugars, even if you're, you know, let's say you're, you know, you're doing your, your, your 18 carbs a day or whatever it is, you, you've factored in, figure out how many you can have, they need to not come from pure sugars, but once you're at goal, you're healthy, Eating something with some honey in it or just having a teaspoon of honey or some honey and some tea, look at it like that was your allowing yourself to have a cookie. It's not ketogenic. But you're not going to live your entire life foregoing every dessert food ever, and that's how it has to be looked at. A dessert food to be had in moderation. 
America has destroyed what the meaning of that word is. I hate using it because in moderation means I don't eat it all the time, every day, nonstop, but I eat it like four times a week, and I eat a small portion of it, which is actually a large portion of it, and I eat it at bedtime, and I don't know why I'm fat, even though I did that with ten other things. That's not in moderation, and that's how people use that word. We have 500-pound people claiming they only eat sweets in moderation. I guess moderation is four bags of, of Oreos washed down with a, with a quart of cream. Right, for some of these people. So you can use some. You can also ferment it into meads, right? I know that's not for the kids, but for you guys. But alcohol itself has to be curtailed. And if you think about the question is, well, we know the right thing to do, but we don't want that to be true. That sounds like any addict. That sounds like the person that says, I know I drink way too much, so much so I probably need to go to AA, but then I won't ever be able to drink again. However, I'm destroying my life and my liver and my body and my kidneys. See where that is? See where that ends up? So, there's a lot of you that want to make out that honey is a health food. I believe that it is. It's a absolutely a health food for bees. Bees are supposed to eat honey. Something you should know about bees, though. They eat honey as a survival food. They much prefer the protein they get from pollen to honey. Honey is, we put this up for winter. Some other things to think about. Beekeeping does not require one to consume honey. My bee mentor, Jason, doesn't like honey. Did discover he likes meat. Did discover he likes meat. He says, like, I can finally use some of my own honey. He loves bees. He loves taking care of bees. He does bees beyond the hobby level. He makes money with bees. Right? He doesn't eat honey. So that's easy for him because he doesn't want to. I will also say that Honey is not the only product that comes from bees. Wax comes from bees. If you're consuming less honey, you can take less honey. Since you're taking less honey from them, you have then you feed them less. There's a lot of things you can do with bees and be a good steward of the bee and taking care of the bee without consuming large amounts of their honey. So that's the best I can do here. And we'll see what Ken has to say on it, but um, I, I think it's going to be no, you can't eat honey. And my slightly modified is you can, you got to count the carbs. Uh, you can't do it often and don't do it when you are trying to reach goal. I come at keto very much this way. Most people that come to keto, whether they want to admit it or not, are doing it because of health reasons. And the standard American diet today creates addicts to carbohydrates and sugars. Even people that think they eat healthy, right, and they don't eat a lot of processed foods, but they rely on a lot of breads and other um, sources of carbohydrate, huge amounts of legumes, rice, etc. They're consuming an addictive substance. It would be like saying we give everybody a little heroin every day, but that doesn't mean we're creating addicts. And no, I'm not overdoing it here. I really mean that. Our bodies developed through evolution when most of humanity never had long-term, easy access to carbohydrates. There's a big lie now that, that, that it's being pushed by those with an agenda to say that it's unreasonable for humans to think that having access to meat daily is, a, is an easy thing. Until we created civilizations and agriculture, the easiest thing for most indigenous cultures to acquire on a daily ongoing basis with which to feed themselves were substances from 
things that have a face. If you if you go out in the wilderness, you're going to have only seasonal access to sugar. And you're going to have year-round access to critters that eat things you can't, like browse off of trees, right? Like grass, like seeds that are inedible to humans, etc. Like insects that maybe we can eat but we don't really want to or we can't easily acquire it and they can to fish, etc., and bonk it over the head, trap it, shoot it with an arrow, whatever. Follow a lion pride and eat what's left over and break the freaking marrow out of the bones. The amount of nutritional density we get from that versus climbing up a, a, a non-cultivated wild fig tree, you know, in the brief period of time that there's figs on it and shaking it, is enormous. However, sugars and starches put fat on bodies. And they tend to pop up in nature at two times. In early spring, blackberries, blueberries, etc., right? When we're coming out of winter darth, or in fall, apples, pears, etc., right? Especially in wild form, when we're heading into winter, where we either need to replenish our fat stores, because it's, it's good to have a little fat on us, believe it or not, or when we need to up them because we're fixing to go through a rough period. And so we evolved that when we get our hands on sugar, num, 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 because take away Kroger and Winn-Dixie and you know, Publix and Albertsons, etc., and we just don't have that. We just don't. We're going to end up you know, browsing on edible greens, fungi like mushrooms, and the occasional berry, etc., the occasional nut, etc., but mostly human beings in indigenous cultures today even, where they're allowed to live their traditional ways, rely heavily on animal product. We are a creature. No, we are not the predator that a lion or a leopard is, but in some ways we're far more of a predator because we have a brain. Those animals use physical powers as predators. We use intellect. And this is something hard for people to understand. We've had this intellect for a long time. What we lacked was knowledge. The intellect we had. The person that walked around two feet, the human being that lived 100,000 years ago, had as much, probably more, generalized IQ as the average person today. No, they didn't know what a computer was and there wasn't one. That's knowledge. But when it came to you put us in the same position and figuring out what we would do, They had an advantage, not just because they grew up in it, but because they knew they, 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 they already accepted all these things that we would see as ways to get it done didn't exist. So you looked around, well, there's a thing there. That, that boy, gee, that, 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 that small tree is kind of springy. Uh, there's a vine. There's some stuff. And they could figure out how to make traps. Well, this thing, I can hold this rock up with it, and when the critter tries to get this... Stuff I know, it's like shoot up and stuck on a stick and a rock goes, it's dead, right? They knew that because that's what they had around them. And so that's what we, that's what we ate. So the problem then for the person who's coming out of this world where we have unlimited carbohydrates, they were, you were hard programmed to consume that stuff in excess quantity because it had to be consumed. We had no way to preserve it. We damn sure couldn't ship it from California, which didn't exist, to Ohio, which didn't exist. So a 400-pound person could roll up on a rascal scooter and fill up a bag full of it. And we damn sure didn't have the technology to take the fructose out of it and turn it into a Twinkie and a Ho-Ho 
for the same person to put there, but they felt like they ate healthy because they bought a jug of orange juice that has more sugar than Coca-Cola. So I know I went long on that one too, but that's because when you are correcting this program, this problem, no honey, no Coca-Cola, no ice cream, no, I, I even say none of the keto treats, the keto candy, none of it. These are all things to be used after you have recovered, assuming that you are capable of recovering. There are people I believe that can have a drinking problem, that can correct, that usually involves complete abstinence for a while, and they can go and have a couple beers every once in a while after that because their problem was not fully physical, it was more psychological. And there are people that they can't ever drink again. And programs like Alcoholics Anonymous treat everybody that way because if you do it, you won't drink again. And there's always the risk of backsliding. Only you can determine that. So anyway, let's move on. Um, so Josh asked, should I buy a house now or wait? He goes through a whole bunch of details. I've had so many other people with a whole bunch of details. The answer is, I don't know when any of you should buy a house in your personal life. I don't know. I can't know. I don't care how many details you give me. You, and I'm not, I'm not picking on Josh. I'm just being as honest as I can. Everybody thinks their situation is unique and everybody's wrong and everybody's right. If you don't think you can afford a house, you probably can't and you probably shouldn't buy one yet. You should be sure. Run the numbers. Do the math. My view on buying a house is for the vast majority of people, the younger and faster you can get into home ownership if you're not stupid about what you buy and where you buy it, the better off you are. It's a big if. So if you buy at the top of a housing market in a really trendy area with high property taxes already, um, that doesn't apply. Renting, in my opinion, though, unless you know why you're doing it and some ideological reason is not a good... Re ideology doesn't go in financial decisions. Right? That's like mixing peanut butter with poop and saying it's good because peanut butter tastes good and the two blended well. But we don't do this like, well, I don't believe in it because property taxes. And that's not what Josh said, to be clear. Right? But I hear that a lot, especially in the libertarian prepper space, et cetera. Um, you're paying, like I've always said this, you're paying. So if I'm renting to you and you say, well, I'm getting out of paying property taxes. No, you're paying mine for me. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm taking advantage of all the tax advantages of being in commercial real estate by renting to you. And you're building up my equity. And I could even be holding it in my Roth IRA and not ever paying taxes on it or doing 1301 rollovers when I, when I, when I get done with that property, sell it to somebody else and move into the next property or move into two properties that I combine together for that exchange, right? There's so many advantages to being in real estate because rich people own real estate and rich people write laws. So they look at taxes the way that corporations look at regulations. It's an expense. I'd rather not have it, but if it keeps my competition at bay, okay. I can afford it, and they can't, and I'm just going to pass it on to my consumer. See how that works? So when you're renting, the underlying value of that property is going up. Yeah. And so your rent is going to go up as fast as they can, as fast as they can push it up according to the lease that you signed when you went in. And you're going to get no equity gain. So when would I not buy? Okay. I am in the military and I have a three-year assignment and I know I'm going to be transferred. It's a good reason to not buy. 
I'm in any sort of short-term situation where I know I'm going to be transferred or I know I don't want to live in this place. Even short-term, though, when you buy smart, you make money. Say that again. When you buy smart, you make money. And it's easier to get approved for a mortgage if you already own a house that you're selling to buy another house. So my answer to everybody that asked this in like the past six weeks, and there's about two dozen, as fast as you can, under the circumstances that make sense for you. Okay, And that might mean that one of you should buy now. And one of you should buy next month. And one of you should buy in six months. And one of you should buy in 12 months. And one of you should buy in three years. And I can't get into all the minutia and details. By the way, Josh, you did a good job. Yours is pretty short compared to some of these other ones. But Josh also asked about Buying land, putting a double white on it. Okay. I've talked about this before, too. In general, mobile homes are bad investments. In general. Bought one, I made money on it. Okay? You can. But in general, they're not good investments. They decline in value. The way you make money on a mobile is you make it look as good as you can, which you do with any house, and you really improve the land in the situation, and you don't let it degrade anymore than you have to. So what ends up happening is you feel like you made money on the mobile, but you didn't. You made money on the total real estate, which included the land, the infrastructure, etc. You lost some money on the trailer, or mobile home, whatever you want to call it, but it was offset by the appreciation on the totality of the property. And the way that you know this is true, get any more mobile home, put it on a piece of land, okay? offer to handle delivery and set up at a new location and try to sell it for what you paid for it. You can't get it. I know it's not practical to compare a house that way because you can't. I can't have my house relocated without incredible expense, right? But if you could, you could still get more for a house in 15 years than you paid for it. You are never going to do that with a mobile home. So be strategic if you know why you're doing what you're doing, okay? All right, so next up on this, this was one I thought was really interesting. And it was spurred on by the show I did recently on environmentalism or what real environmentalism is and what real climate change is. Because people say I'm a climate change denier. I don't believe that CO2 is responsible for all the climate change. And I don't believe that we can have much more effect with CO2 on the atmosphere because science, since people like to, to cite science. So CO2 has a saturation limit. CO2 actually is pretty good at reflecting UV light and raising temperature. That's true. We can raise the temperature of a planet with more CO2 in the atmosphere. But it only actually reflects a pretty narrow band of wavelength. And the, 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 the world has been higher than that number, that threshold, for a long time now. So if you're really super low, and by the way, we have less than a percent of our atmosphere is CO2, just so you know. right? So we're not talking about percentage. We're, talking, we're measuring things in tenths or hundreds of percentages for differences here, which is what all the people that are freaking out are talking about, even if they don't know that's what they're saying. So I don't think... CO2 is our biggest problem. I don't think, even if it was, 
cutting emissions will fix all the things we've screwed up because there's such bigger problems, even if they were right. And what I said is one of our biggest problems and one of our most massive things in, sh in changing climate on the planet for the worse and losing the moderation effect is the elimination of topsoil. This is what Ofer sent me on this. He said, hello, Jack. In the short time I've been listening, I've heard you repeat several times how we're losing topsoil. Well, we don't have to go back too far for an example of how bad this can be. You probably knew that Mussolini invaded and captured Ethiopia during World War II. He did this because he was concerned that food supplies from Europe would be cut off to Italy as the war progressed. Why Ethiopia? Because for hundreds of years, Ethiopia was the breadbasket of Africa. They exported food to the whole continent. After the war and the return of, I can't say this guy's name, to his throne, whoever was leading Ethiopia at the time, the fledgling United Nations started to help. There you go. The government, because the UN, whether people want to admit it or not, is a form of governance, decided to help. Um, decided to help recover from the damage done during the war. In Ethiopia, they found a poor country where only a small fraction of children survived to adulthood. They could fix that with childhood vaccination and water purification systems. The majority of children were able to live to adulthood. Predictably, this caused a huge population explosion in Ethiopia. He shows me the trends. From 18 million in 1950 to 115 million in 2020. But Ethiopia was still a poor country. They built huts using wood. They cooked meals on wood fires. As the population grew, more trees were cut down for building and cooking. As the forests disappeared, the topsoil and farms washed away. By 1980, Ethiopia was in a constant state of famine. It still is. In less than one generation, the bountiful harvest of Ethiopia was destroyed by bureaucrats who succeeded in lowering the child death rate and made the country a beggar for food. Can that happen in the USA? Yes, it can be just as fast here. 1950, the U.S. county with the highest agricultural output was L.A. County. By 1970, the county produced practically zero until the artificial drought created by environmentalists in California's Central Valley, Fresno County, was the highest producer of produce in the country. Today, Fresno County has the fastest rate of conversion of farmland into housing developments. Where will we grow food once we pave over all the farms? Thanks for sounding alarm, Jack. I don't think many people are hearing it, though. Over. Over. I think one of the things that we need to look at in this country very, very strongly is that one thing we have that a lot of these other places where this went much faster don't, It's a couple things. Number one, we have a lot of flat land where even when we're doing really bad practices, our, our erosion is somewhat mitigated. That's one thing we have. We have a, a mitigated erosion because we're so flat. So even when we do stupid shit, and even though the exportation of topsoil is terrible in wind and water, it's less than it could be. That's one thing we have. Two, we are a very young agricultural country. So in a country like Ethiopia, there were bad, because all agricultural practices that humans have done in general have been bad. About the only agricultural, that doesn't mean grow food, but when we think agricultural practice that's been done in the world that actually builds soil without intentionally trying to. And this includes when you're doing crop rotation and using manure and stuff like you, you plow fields, you make 
you turn land into desert eventually. <clears throat> the exception is rice paddy systems, which naturally build soil. Right? So almost all agriculture is bad. Now, again, regen ag, not what we're talking about. So we have thousands and thousands of years of a lot less people doing agriculture in Ethiopia and exporting their grain all over the, the, the African continent. So when things stepped up, they went faster. So we are young agriculturally. We don't have thousands and thousands of years. We have a few hundred of this going on. And we have a very non-brittle climate, right? And when I, when I say climate here, I mean climate. I'm talking about the temperate climate we exist in, but I'm also talking about our topography. And we have a tremendous amount of forest and wilderness that was unsuitable for farming that has remained largely not jacked with. And that's moderated us. But what's happening is all these places like Ofer's talking about here, as they become developments and we have to keep producing enough agriculture, we're starting to cut down more trees. We're doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. We also had, you know, a tremendous amount of coal that became immediately available to us. So we had a source of energy even before the days of electricity. Not so in Ethiopia, right? So we've had things that have mitigated this. Doesn't change the it doesn't change what we're doing. It just slows the the descent in the trajectory. And we are destroying our arable farmland which is the single best resource our country has. There is no one in the world that has at least what we started with. You know, if we go back 5,000 years, this country had the best period opportunity when it came to food production. Massive opportunity. And we're ruining it. We're ruining it. And there you go. Fossil fuels actually slowed it down. Because you don't have to cut all the trees down, just the ones you need for the silver and coal mines, right? And there was, I mean, there's huge truth to this. This is so true. You can even see it in the Middle East that we think of as always being desert. You find out that a lot of these places in living history, so there are people alive that remember it differently. This was all forest. It was desert forest, but it was forest. And I was listening to one of Neil Spackman's uh, things where they were, you know, they were asking a man where, what happened to all the trees. He said they were, cut, they were cut down. And somebody said, well, why? He said, people cut down trees. is what they do. Guys, this is why we have to be good stewards of our own land because they're not going to fix it. It's just, just the way that it is. So thanks for sending that one. It, to me, it's, it's pretty telling that that happened so fast in Ethiopia. And if you're a kid, you know, if you were a kid like me in the eighties, you remember all the commercials on TV and you remember looking at that wasteland where these people were walking across hungry with flies on their face and thinking to yourself, why would people live there? I remember being young and callous as a teenager and, you know, and remembering Sam Kennison's bit about, there's no food here, go where the food grows, screaming and yelling like that. It's the sand, you know. Um, the reason they lived there, it wasn't always sand. And if you really think about it, 1950 to 1980, 30 years. That's why they lived there. Because they didn't understand why it happened, and they thought that someday the rains would come and it would get better. And if the rains come and you don't fix the problem, things don't get better, they get worse.
With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. I don't have an item of the day for you today. I'm, I was just behind out of the gate, obviously. Uh, but remember, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. I will have an item of the day for you tomorrow. Uh, today's song of the day is by Triumph. It's called Fight the Good Fight. Um, this was written by uh, singer and guitarist Rick Emmerich. So Triumph was made up of, it's like a power trio. Uh, Rick Emmerich, Mike Levine, uh, and Gil Moore. Uh, Emmerich wrote this song, and he was inspired by his aunt who was dying of cancer. What he said about it was, what can you tell someone who is facing the last challenge of this life? Uh, what will you tell you, or what will you tell yourself? If you're in a rock band called Triumph, what message can you share with the people listening to a song on the radio or standing in their chairs out in the arena. Everybody gets to decide what their own good fight will be, but everyone should be encouraged to discover it and do it. And I think this is an interesting thing, like because if it's you, okay, then you have your own internal battle. But let's start off with it. Well, he was inspired by his aunt. You know what you can't tell somebody who has terminal cancer? It's going to be okay. can't tell them that. They're dying and they know it. You can't tell them you're going to get through this because they're not. Right, And there's always the hope that even what, what doctors say is terminal, you can fight and win. And I would certainly try. But there are certain things that you can have that you know you're going to die. And so all you can do is fight the good fight, whatever it is for you. So you can't tell that person it's going to be okay. You can do what you can to help them and let them know Because the first thing the person usually worries about when they get this message, once they go through the anger and denial and, 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 and the depression, is they worry about they worry about the people they're going to leave behind. They worry about those people, you know, not being taken care of, not being protected. So letting them know that you'll you'll do that, I guess you can do. But you have to let them battle that battle. If it's you, you have to battle that battle. And I know what I've said about, you know, when you know like this is as good as it gets and it's not going to get any better tomorrow, that's when you stop thinking about the future. That's when you stop being optimistic. And I can't say that if I got a terminal diagnosis, I'm going to be optimistic. I, I think I certainly wouldn't be initially. But whatever life we have, we got to live it all the way in our own way. And we should be doing that all the time because we all have a terminal illness. It's called life. Life ends in death, period. I should say exclamation point. We all are fighting this battle all the time. The difference when we get really, really old, and we know that we're limited just by human lifespan, or we're specifically diagnosed with an illness, is we become aware of how much of the dash is left, or at least we get a damn good estimate. And it's easy to sit back when you're, even when you're 50 and say, you know, even if I'm going to live 75, that's still 25 years. That's a third of how long I, you know, it's a half, it's half my life up so far. But when you hear it's six months, six weeks, six days, whew. but can you fight the good fight? We'll never know until and if we face it. Because sometimes we go out quick and we don't know. But I will tell you, the only thing you can do is live your life now, fighting the good fight. 
Might have been a little of a weak episode because first one back, weak voice, weak episode, but did my best for you. Hope you enjoy this song. And by the way, I'll tell you one way I would describe this song. This song was released uh, back in 1981. If there's a song that sounds like the 80s, it's this one in a good way. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Chance. 